Blacklantic Media acknowledges that it carries out its work on the traditional unceded territory of the Wallistaque, Mi'kmaq, and Peskotumakadi peoples. I would also like to acknowledge that I am seated on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Mi'kmaq people. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Good morning. How is everyone today? Good? Yes? Awesome. Yay! Yeah. I feel like I need a little bit more energy at least for us. For this energy, for this okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, how many people in this room grew up in New Brunswick? Most of you, okay. Uh, for the rest of you, did you grow up in Canada? Where, who, how many people grew up somewhere else in Canada? Uh, okay, uh, anyone from outside of Canada? Okay. Perfect. Okay. Um, no, that's great. It's good to know. It's good for us to know um, what kind of a, a province you may have grown up in, uh, what your exposure to diversity may be, and of course, just because you grew up out of New Brunswick, it doesn't mean you were exposed to a lot of diversity. But uh, that's uh, quite, quite the opposite, which is why we're here today. <laughs> um, yes. So, you want to... Sure, so we're going to talk today about the scope of Canadian education from a black anecdotal lens. Um, I think this launches into our, our favorite disclaimers that we are not historians, um, and this is going to be fun and conversational, despite maybe the subject matter being like a little tricky at times, but um, we're, we're podcasters and we do media. This isn't supposed to be super strict or super formal. It's going to, going to be very chill conversation. Um, but we do have some stats, some articles to share, and generally just like um, getting into the two people that we are in our biographies. I uh, went to school um, in New Brunswick and only left seven years ago. And he sort of did a switcheroo and lived in Toronto and then moved here, but is a parent who has kids in the school system here. So we both feel like we have different perspectives that come together to really inform the careers that you guys are launching yourselves into and how to be great teachers to black kids who need you guys to be those great teachers. Absolutely. So we, we've been podcasting together for about three years now, two years with Black Atlantic. It's uh, allowed us multiple opportunities <laughs> to talk to um, uh, multiple groups and do a lot of work and just uh, reach out to people in, in smaller communities and bigger cities alike. Uh, Amy, to answer your question, I, I didn't even really cross my mind, but yes, uh, my mother was born in Prince Edward Island. I'm a fifth generation Canadian on that side. Uh, when she was in her early 20s, she went on a missionary trip to Jamaica where she ended up working in the same orphanage as my father. Uh, they met there and, you know, sparks flew and they... Uh, <laughs> They got married and my mom lived in Jamaica for 10 years uh, with my dad in Kingston and until they moved to Toronto, which is, uh, my older brothers were born in Jamaica and my, me and my younger sister was born in, uh, were born in Toronto. Uh, I'll plug my sister for a quick second. You my sister well, yeah. lives in Halifax. She's an internationally published author named Charlene Carr. She released a book with HarperCollins last year called Hold My Girl. And actually just a few days ago, she released her second novel called, um, oh we my ripped, gosh, We Ripped the World we Apart. We Ripped the World Apart. It's a multi-generational story actually dealing with racism and, and trauma and uh, just uh, so if, things similar to what we're discussing If today. I can piggyback on that, it's an amazing book to talk about like the bi, like biracial intercultural lens because it really deals with a black dad from Kingston, Jamaica and a white mom from Canada and talking about the identity crisis that is being 
biracial in Canada and especially in the East Coast and that's very much the lens that I'm going to be talking about and trying to figure out uh, who the heck am I when I don't fit in with white people or black people and that's the perspective I'm bringing today to all of you so if you want more insight get that book read that book it's very it changed my life in all honesty I cried in an airport over a book I bawled in an airport over this book it's that good it's that good so shameless plug of my sister. Yeah. But uh, no, that's interesting you brought that up because uh, my parents got married in Jamaica before the civil rights movement even took place in the States. So uh, it was a long time ago and uh, it just goes to show, right? And uh, she had a good time in Jamaica. When my dad went out to PEI, he was well accepted, which isn't the norm that you, that you hear all the time, especially back then. But uh, yeah, uh, Hillary and I actually are intercultural. Uh, I've moved away from using the term interracial uh, I don't believe in race, uh, even though our show is called Black Atlantic. I don't even believe in the term black. I don't believe people are black. I don't believe people are white. I believe those. I believe we're all shades of brown and beige, because otherwise, when you put a black and white person together and have a baby, they don't come out gray. <laughs> That's uh, it's just ridiculous. Like everyone is. Uh, we're just, these are concepts that were actually created in the uh, late 1400s in Portugal. Uh, and the terms black and white were used to actually separate and divide human beings. Uh, there is not really any reference in history to the terms black and white being used in text uh, before the transatlantic slave trade began. Uh, so just something to note. Uh, we have lived the life through the lens of a black person, however, um, yeah, who are we? What, what, if, if, if race exists, what happens when you put two races together and, and create a human being? Right? Or we are we're all just part of the same. I have an article about this coming a, out. Actually. Yeah, no, actually, um, I, I'll say quickly that I still say biracial, but that's because uh, I think what you'll learn from my sharing is that I feel like I have brown skin, but I'm a white person inside a brown body. It took a very long time for me to accept and like myself for being black. So for me, I still say biracial because I don't really know how else to define myself, but it's it's an ongoing process in this body and person to figure out who I want to be. So we don't, we're business partners, but we don't always agree and we don't always see eye to eye on this stuff or we learn from each other a lot. Another good point before we get into the actual presentation <laughs> is, yeah, we don't always agree. Um, and uh, we use terms like black, and we're going to continue to, and we use terms like race and racist because those are the terms. But when you think about it, I, I feel like terms like that can work to divide people even more. Calling some, using the term racist implies that we are not all members of the same species. Uh, and I know between cultures there can be certain genetic differences, but uh, we are all the same. And uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Toronto around uh, a lot of black people and white people, but uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, my point was we don't always agree, uh, mm -hmm. and black people um, are very different. Uh, the term black, again, means nothing. Black people can come from Canada, from the States, from the Caribbean, from South America, from all over Africa, from Europe, and the like. And uh, in fact, many of the people we've interviewed over the years on our podcast who are immigrants from Africa, these people don't know each other, but they've said the same thing. Uh, they said they didn't know they were black until they came to North America. Because yes. if you are from Sweden, you're Swedish. Right? If you're from Nigeria, you're, you grew up Nigerian, and that's how you refer to yourself. And then you come here, and you're black. You don't have a country, you don't have a, you're not just Canadian, you're not just Nigerian, you're just 
meshed into this pool of black where people from Jamaica may have nothing in common with someone from Senegalese, or Senegal. Um, different cultures, different languages, different beliefs, maybe different foods, different musics. I guess the one time thing that people with skin color like ours have in common is that, you know, we want to be seen as equal. Uh, we don't want to be judged by the color of our skin. Uh, and uh, we face the same racial oppressions. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So, we'll get into our actual... Yeah, now, now let's start the actual show. Um, so we will give a little bit of an introduction into like Black Atlantic's missions and values. Um, Clinton is going to do a brief overview over the history of black communities in New Brunswick, but again, we aren't historians. So it's going to it's just going to be a quick little scan. Um, and then I'm going to talk about my experience growing up in Moncton and the 23 years I experienced, well, not all 23 were in school, but the years I experienced in the Moncton, New Brunswick school system. Clinton's going to talk about uh, arriving and parenting in New Brunswick, his experience and how that uh, it has is in contrast to being in Toronto. Um, and then we'll uh, we'll share some other uh, some documents as well, and then we'll draw on some conclusions, and then you'll go see our friends in the other room. That'll be a day. If uh, you don't mind me saying this, if you have a question that you just like it's burning inside you and you just can't contain it. I, I think yeah. it's okay to, again, there, we're very there will be like a, There will be like a question period, I think, at like the third hour of this day, but like we're not going to stop you from asking anything pressing right now. This, like we said, chill, chill chat. <laughs> All right, perfect. That's the part I don't have memorized. <laughs> but Black Landing is an online and digital social purpose organization focused on providing platforms of perspective towards the diversity of being black in Atlantic Canada while challenging common stereotypes. Our mission is to amplify black voices and share stories that encourage the understanding of black Atlantic lives while hiring black content creators, working with organizations on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, and working towards a more inclusive community. And our purpose through achieving all of these things is that communities that are spread apart across Atlantic Canada will feel more connected, less segregated, and less siloed. Um, we've brought together community leaders, entrepreneurs, youth to both be inspired and inspire the Black Atlantic community. That's us. So, um, I'll read about some of the Black historic communities and current ones in New Brunswick. And I'm sorry, I, you know, I'm going to be turned away for part of this as well, and then I'll face you and just talk from from my knowledge. Um, but black communities, many of which were established by, well, actually, let me ask you a question before. So, does, uh, don't, look, don't look at this. Does anyone know um, when the first, this is the only time I'll use quotes, black people arrived in New Brunswick? Let me also say that I don't think I know that answer right now, even though I've read it. And I didn't know when I went to school in New Brunswick. That was not, I do not remember that being taught to me in, in, at any point in my education. So don't, don't feel bad. <laughs> Does anyone who grew up in New Brunswick recall learning about the history of black people in New Brunswick at any point whatsoever? I see a hand. That's good. Yeah. Just a little, just a little bit. What do you recall? Just learning like. Civil War. Oh, Revolutionary War, the first one, yes, 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 yes. Given really, really bad land, correct. A plus. Good job. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yes. Um, for most people we come across, the only experience they've ever 
or can recall uh, having been taught about is like a little bit about Martin Luther King, uh, a little bit about Rosa Parks, American history, the and Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. Underground yes. Railroad. Um, and that uh, also, I mean, not, not to, but like Underground Railroad also perpetrates this idea of Canada as this saving place right. where people could find respite, and this is a place where there was no slavery, where everyone came here for freedom. Um, and I think only recently, even like I said, with no no guilt or shame involved. I only recently learned about like Viola Desmond and some of the prominent Canadian figures. Continue. No, that's fine. That's great. Yeah. So the first um, black people arrived in New Brunswick in the late 1700s after the American Revolutionary War. Um, the first black Canadian documented arrived in Canada around uh, 1509. And uh, a theory that is not widely accepted by European scholars uh, and, and Western ones, is, but uh, talked about in indigenous communities and uh, theorized through other communities around the world, is that people from Africa in the Malian Empire uh, actually arrived in, this guy knows his stuff, yeah, <laughs> actually arrived in the, the Americas hundreds of years before um, European settlers. Um, and the reason they believe that is there are pyramids in, in Central uh, of South America that are identical to the ones in West Africa. And when they arrived, there were actually numerous crops growing in Central or South America that well, were from Africa, were only found in Africa. And so they didn't know how they got there. Um, yes? Well, I believe, I remember reading this as well, they also found uh, artifacts, old artifacts that were like carbon dated to Yeah, thank you, thank you. Are you are you are you a history student as well? Uh, no, but I, this is this is a history idea. That's amazing. Cool. Yeah. So again, you know, history is written by the victors. Um, there are certain cultures that didn't write down things. All all knowledge was passed uh, through verbally. But uh, yeah, it's and indigenous communities that we've come across without have brought that up to us as well. So it's just something to think about that there there was a, a rich uh, African presence before slavery. Black history may start, wait, I said no more quotes. Black <laughs> history may have started with the transatlantic slave trade, but there were empires, there were nations, there were armies, there was tons of gold and riches, and uh, at certain points in history, Africans were the envy of other societies. So, black people, again, arrived in the late 1900s after the American Revolutionary War. Um, they were promised that if they fought for the British, they would get their freedom. However, it's not that black and white. Actually, in fact, if you fought, you were not automatically granted your freedom. Even after the war, there was a tribunal with a, a council of people that decided whether these black people would remain enslaved or whether or not they would be allowed freed. And I believe the tribunal was made up of partially people who lost <laughs> the war, uh, mm. at least during the Civil War. Yes. So the first arrivals, uh, everyone knows about the, the black history in Nova Scotia, but people don't know that an equal amount of people arrived in St. John, New Brunswick around the same time. And yes, they were promised land, and uh, they did not receive that land when they got here. There was years of communication and fighting that took place. And when they did receive the land, uh, the land was horrible. It was some of the worst land available. It was rocky. It was hard to, uh, to develop and grow. It was very forested. And it was 
very far away from any of the settlements that existed. Now, as you can imagine, there was no real transportation back then like we have today. There was no cars. Um, black people were not given horses and carts and buggies. And they were only given X amount of years to develop the land. And if they didn't develop the land within that time, the land would be forfeited and taken back for them. So they were, they were given land, but the odds were stacked so highly against them that they weren't actually able to do it. And not only did these black arrivals came, uh, when that happened in 1798, and then again after the American Civil War, many slaves came as well. There were many slaves in Canada for, for many years until 1834 when slavery was abolished. But then of course, just because a law changes, it doesn't mean that public opinion and perception changes. Uh, black people were not given equal or fair opportunities. They were not accepted into culture. Um, they were not given jobs. Uh, and again, the land they were given was very hard to maintain. So I'm sure you've all heard of indentured servitude. Many black people had to enter into indentured servitude. And the children of these people, uh, you know, they would just give up as well. Uh, so the land that they were promised didn't really come to fruition. I would say, I, I didn't know what indentured servitude is, so to be to be clear, it's basically, it's like be, being paid to be a slave in a way. It's just like you, you're a live-in nanny or, or person who has to take care of the house, and it's supposed to be you're free, but you're really paying to live in quarters with people who do not like you and do not want you around because they see you as a lesser human being. Also, did you mention the the whole point of the land and why it's so problematic is that a lot of people were given three years to turn the land into agriculture, and the whole point was if you weren't able to turn your your uh, land into something prosperous, you were then going to be refused to stay. And that's where we get to the Sierra Leone Company, which we'll describe in a second. Do you want to talk about the Well, yeah. So, so it's not that we're all proud Canadians, but uh, yeah, a lot of people don't know that slavery existed here. Um, and in fact, we had uh, Hillary's contact at the New Brunswick Provincial Archives, was able to dig up a lot of information. We don't have these with us, but we can include them with the PowerPoint presentation we're going to send. We've been able to uncover scanned documents of actually bills of sale for the sale of human beings, for the sale of slaves taking place in St. John, New Brunswick, and other places like that. We've uh, found old newspaper article clippings of people looking for their runaway slaves uh, and the rewards that were offered for them. So again, the point of this is just to let you know that if you were not aware, um, slavery took place here on this very land that we're on. And uh, oh, we didn't hear indigenous. Uh, on this very land that we are on, and uh, it's not just an American problem. Now, the reason the slave trade did not explode in Canada like it did in the States was because of the weather. You know, um, the profits uh, created in the States from the slave trade in terms of the cotton industry uh, is part of what made America one of the most powerful nations on earth. Now, up here in Canada, they're just there's the weather does not permit for that kind of thing. So slaves were more um, workers, builders, they worked in the house, but there just wasn't as much of a demand. And in fact, a big reason slavery ended was that uh, the cotton industry was diminishing. Uh, I won't get into American history at all. <laughs> but so in black communities, many of which were established by black arrivees, uh, enslaved, fleeing the states, some of which fled back to the States because uh, of how bad it was here. Mm. Um, and later by immigrants 
here's a list of some black known communities in the province. And sorry, you said to mention the Sierra Leone. What was his name? Ralph Peters? Ralph. Ta Peter Thomas? So Thomas in, Peters? In fact, the conditions here were, were so bad that a gentleman named Peter Thomas in the, I believe, mid 1800s mm -hmm. um, went over to France and talked to the king and petitioned to have. Um, the black people who came here from the States be allowed to leave and go back to Africa. Um, so he was very brave for him to do this in the 1800s, and his proposition was accepted. And so 12 ships sailed from France, came over here, and I think it was something like two or 3,000 people. Um, I'm going to correct you that it's British because they won the war. We always, and we always get it wrong. Get it I think wrong it's because I'm Acadian. I want to think that we won. We didn't. I'm a Leblanc. Um, but it's, it's British. And the other key thing is that it's not even go back to Africa. These people who fought had never stepped foot in the country that they're going to, which is what's insane about this story. Yeah. Side note, you know. We're the, not historians. No. Yeah. yeah. The dates... <laughs> may not be correct, but the information is, uh, except yeah. for the France. Uh, for yeah. um, someone won, someone lost. <laughs> but we've all heard the term of like, you know, a racist person saying, go back to Africa. Yeah. Where? <laughs> Where am I from? I don't, I have no clue. Yeah. I have no clue. Hundreds and hundreds of years and generations of lost language and culture. Africa has 54 countries. I wouldn't know where to go back to. I imagine somewhere in West Africa, but I don't know. I don't know what I'd be going back to. Mm -hmm. But these people, they were treated so badly in Canada, the land of the free underground railroad, that uh, 3,000 people left. And uh, if you've heard of the country named Sierra Leone, that is where they went to. Uh, and uh, these black uh, Americans who came to Canada, who were living in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, they actually founded the city called Freetown mm -hmm. in West Africa called Sierra Leone. And a lot of people don't know that almost an entire country uh, was developed and built by like black people that left Canada. So, so these people who founded this country just like had a little pit stop in St. John and said, no, thank you, and founded an African <laughs> country. And I think it's wild and a little hilarious, but mainly unfortunate. And Hilarious in a horrible, yes. <laughs> the most horrific of ways. Yes. Uh, and um, you see here that some of which fled. Actually, many people who escaped uh, in the Underground Railroad to Canada, again, it's something that we do not talk about, but you can look up, and we'll try to include more information when we send the PowerPoint presentation. They actually went back to the States. Yeah. They said, nope, nope, this is not it. They went back to America. Yeah. Uh, to look for a better life. Um, I'll add just in the in the list of places that you've you've named here that um, one place that we haven't listed outside of St. John Elm Hill also had um, several um, one of the only like segregated schools and I did some research on that because I didn't know that that was a thing when I was studying here that there were schools that were like that and uh, eventually what ends up happening to that school is they just couldn't find white teachers to teach those black kids and they just don't get taught and they just became illiterate and couldn't get jobs until finally the education department created you know schools that were were mixed and are what we know now um, and we were just reading up about something similar that happened in Nova Scotia that's actually being turned into a museum right now but in case people in this room were unaware there were schools that were specifically for black kids back in in the like 1800s yeah, yeah. I'm gonna fly through this because I put the bill to the clock uh, so St. John, one of the oldest black communities, that's where the majority of multi-generational um, black families come from, from the 1780s. 
um, and they're still there, seven generations. Uh, our colleague, Tondaway McCarthy, just spoke yesterday at the Beaver Book Art Gallery, and uh, yeah, he is a seventh generation Canadian, and he's in the process of completing a book right now. Um, a, a book and a project called Still Here. He found 40, um, like, long-standing genera generational families, and the King Council of the Arts gave him funding to explore this, and so he's interviewed 15 long-standing black families that are from here. They're writing a book. They're taking over, I believe, the Weaver Book Art Gallery next year, and it's going to be the whole um, inner walkthrough. It's going to be about the black history of these families and the fact that they've been here a long time. They were still here because he heard someone on the radio claim that slavery never happened and that black people aren't really from this province and he was going to educate those people. <laughs> and so he made a project out of it. Uh, um, but yeah, Fredericton, where we are, has probably the second largest historical black community. Uh, and there's Willow Grove, located near St. John, Lac Lamond, uh, also near St. John, uh, Elgin, and Fathom Hole. These are all little communities. I'm not even sure Fathom Hole is still around. Uh, and then Moncton, where I've been, where I was for about 14 years. I'm now, I live in the, the country. But uh, <laughs> Moncton actually never had a very strong historical black community. Um, however, being a bilingual city, uh, they have a huge number of students from West Africa that go to the university. Now, it used to be the case that the students would come here to university and go back home because of how horrible it is. The good news is <laughs> conditions have improved to the, to the point where a lot of West African students are staying. So actually, the black community uh, that is not ancestral, but uh, is immigrant-based, is actually growing quite a bit in Moncton as well. I think that segues perfectly to how, how I got here. Yes. So <laughs> um, my dad is from Senegal, and he is one of the many people who actually immigrated to Moncton to go to University of Moncton. Um, my funny story is that my mom was his landlord, and you can piece together what happened because I'm standing <laughs> in front of you, and it's awkward. Um, but but um, he is one of the people who stayed in this country. Um, however, um, to give a good basis around that and sort of how I feel about myself, he did not stay in Moncton with my family. He left and made another family in Ottawa, and I love him and I love them. But um, I was raised by my white mom in a white community, and she actually uh, went into labor on her 43rd birthday. So you can imagine that that was a very specific type of upbringing with an older white mom. Um, and I hated myself. I felt really awkward about the fact that I was always one of the only black kid in all of my classes from kindergarten to grade 12 for 13 years. We were only five black kids in Queen Elizabeth School and Harrison Trimble High School at like any given time. And to piggyback on what Clinton's saying about that lack of black ancestral community in Moncton, for me what was very difficult was like this language barrier because a lot of the immigrants that were coming that were going to University of Moncton were proper French. I was Acadian Shiak at best and we're talking <laughs> when I was like maybe 14 at that point because you're in immersion and learning up until then realistically. So I didn't know how to talk to black people. I didn't feel like I was black enough to have earned the racism I was experiencing. I, funny enough, and I'm going to be saying this on Monday when I do another talk, but I was embarrassed that I am having this talk while having straight hair because it took me so long to like my afro. And that's like how internalized this racism can get. I used to straighten my hair for a decade from grade seven until I was like in my 20s because I wanted to be a white girl. I wanted boys to like me. And I genuinely thought if I could play with and flip my hair, that would make boys in recess like me more because I was like a white girl and I wasn't this other thing that was sort of hated and picked on. Um, I was called the N-word the first time at the age of two in Highfield Square Mall. 
a skinhead said, uh, look at that nigger baby to my mom while I was getting uh, my first pair of underwear to be potty trained. And my mom told me about that. And um, I don't know if she did the right thing by telling me, but her goal and intention was that you were two. You can't dislike a person based on their personality at the age of two. You dislike them because of something completely arbitrary and that's on the other person. And I think her mindset was, that's not on you. You like your blackness is like, it's not a personality. It's not something you should be hating. And so that was something that I learned really early on. Um, in high school, in the 10th grade, I was pushed into a wall and called the cotton picker. Um, I remember my high school teacher at the time for my math class. Um, I remember coming in and being really, uh, you can tell I'm loud. I was always loud, even on good days, but I was very loud and upset. And I remember her like silencing me and feeling in that moment like I wasn't being heard because she was telling me I was overreacting and to calm down. Um, but she ended up filing a complaint and getting that kid suspended. And so behind the scenes, I think that the right thing was being done. But in the moment, I didn't feel heard or validated. I felt very much like I was a loud black kid overreacting about something that I felt was horribly wrong. Um, that's sort of, a, I guess, a common theme in things that happened to me. There was a kid who in the third grade um, called me a chocolate bar and my teacher tried to convince me that he meant that because I was so sweet. But like a week prior, he had drawn a swastika on one of those big erasers you could get at the Scholastic Book Fair. And so I felt it was coming from hatred and I was told I was wrong until I, my mother loudly complained. And then I remember he, his punishment was making me cookies and my mom was just like, they made his mom obviously make me cookies as an apology for being treated this way. Um, in the sixth grade, I had uh, my kids would hit me on my afro to bounce a badminton racket off of my head because my hair was bouncy. Um, I was often told that my hair was wrong, that my haircuts were bad. Um, and that led to a series of, when I got to high school, I genuinely allowed what, we don't like the term microaggression, it's racism. I don't care how small it is. If you play with my hair, if you talk about my hair, if you ask if black people experience the cold differently, if you ask if we can tan, that's racist in my mind. That's not just small because it's not the N-word. Um, so I experienced a lot of that in high school, but I welcomed it because I thought if I let people be racist to me and I did it first and got the upper hand, maybe people would like me. And fast forward, I ended up, um, that mindset led me to actually have a, an addiction problem for four years. I've been sober for another four, and I really <laughs> don't, don't most are kind. <laughs> didn't expect this, um, but um, all of that I think genu genuinely stems from being like ostracized and feeling like I had to force myself into this box to be liked. And you're, if you're willing to do anything to be liked, that can be drugs. That can be saying that you are the N-word to yourself and all of these other things just to have people respect you. And that's not respect because you don't respect yourself. Um, and to bring that back to, to today, I think that all of that genuinely stems from representation, finding people who are going to support you and champion you and having self-respect. And if you don't have that, it can really lead down this sort of dark path. Um, so I found it very difficult. I really felt alone in Moncton and in the white community. And even when I went to EDM, like I said, because I couldn't speak proper French, I felt really shy and awkward. And I was actually, I, 
studied English at UDM thinking it would be easier. I still wasn't that degree was very hard. I don't recommend. Um, but um, I was then in the English department, like only one, the only black student for a very long time. And it was still really uncomfortable and hard to deal with. Um, I think I got through everything, to be quite honest. Um, in terms of finding myself and my blackness, so what I actually ended up changing was um, I wasn't sober when I was uh, from 21 to 23. I moved to Toronto thinking I would sort of scare myself straight and get better and, you know, stop doing drugs. Um, and I didn't stop when I was there. And what actually changed everything was when um, my friends broke my lease and I had to move in with my dad simply because I had no money. But this was the first time I was living with a black person and in a black household. And my aunties taught me about braiding my hair and how to tie headscarves appropriately. And I got to eat amazing Senegalese food. I also got to yell at somebody about abandoning me and try to understand this whole familial complexity that was my life. Um, but that really brought together a love of who I was and an understanding Talking to my dad during the murder of George Floyd about him being stopped by police in Ottawa was something I never expected to come from my dad's mouth. And that was something that made me think, shit, I'm black. Like, <laughs> this is really something that's affecting my people and my family. This isn't a faraway situation. This is my life. And I started um, Facebooking about living with a black person and how it was this revolution. And uh, I, a year and a half later, we ended up founding Black Atlantic after working on a different podcast together. And now this sort of activism and outreach is basically what I, what I do as part of my living, just because I think that people need to hear more of these stories. But also, there are lots of intercultural, biracial people who probably also feel this identity crisis. And I've had a lot of people come to me with other students and friends and even, you know, your sister's book that really relate to this idea of, you're not white enough to hang around white people, but you're not black enough to understand real racism or be black. So who are you and what are you? And it is a very common thread. So that's sort of why I uh, do what I do and why I'm here and some of my experience, I guess, in the school system. Thank Your you turn. For that. No worries. Um, <laughs> before I get into what I'm going to say, and I am going to be mindful of time, um, the way this ties into the, the teaching careers you are all going into is that you know there are only maybe one in every 10,000 black people in Canada who don't have stories like this. We all have stories. Uh, and while they may seem like little one-off events, we all have a collection of stories that add up over a lifetime that create this sort of collective trauma in us. These stories from when we were four or seven or 15 or 20 that don't go away, and it's just this feeling that builds up that makes us feel that we don't belong here or belong in our own skin. So as you go into these careers, know that the people in your classrooms who will be people of color, they will have these stories, and they need your support. They need your support. They need allies. They need you to stand up for them if you see racism taking place. Um, Racism is not illegal. Racist hate crimes, uh, they're, not, they're not actually illegal. You know, there are LGBTQ laws, which are great and then help protect. And actually, sometimes when racism happens, I, I've seen schools deflect and talk about their LGBTQ policies um, and not racism. Um, I don't believe in New Brunswick or even anyone's ever been charged with a hate crime in the, all of the history of New Brunswick. Uh, and I'm not even sure about Canada. 
but everyone has these stories. They're not making them up, and uh, one of the most painful things about them is that no matter what color your skin is, everyone just wants to feel like they are a part of the community and that they belong. Mm -hmm. And when these incidents happen, it is like a slap in the face that uh, you just can't sit in a room and feel like no one is thinking of you a certain way or judging you a certain way or hating you. Um, you know, people aren't necessarily being lynched for not being lynched like they used to. Um, you know, the skinheads have all grown out their hair and uh, they are, they're working in office jobs now, but they're still there. There's many different ways to oppress people systemically without calling them the N-word or, or, or dragging them by their neck from a truck. Um, if you want to go back, I'll talk about that very briefly. Before I go? Yeah, yeah, yeah perfect. Yeah, sure. So an article that I wrote for BuyBlacks.com, which is an online black Ontario-based magazine, is this idea of adultification. Has anyone in this room heard of adultification? So, <laughs> adultification is the idea that kids are sort of robbed of their youth or innocence before they've actually grown up. It's the idea that you might look at a black little girl and actually see a black woman, or the idea that black boys are racially profiled and viewed as black men before they are actually adults, which can look like someone I actually know in this community at 16 years old being avoided on the street and people crossing the street to avoid him in Riverview, New, or sorry, I guess not this community, yeah, Riverview, New Brunswick, but in the New Brunswick community. Um, I wrote an article about how this looks, um, this, this is me as a child and my cousin, um, and this idea that when I went to school, I think adultification for me looked like being given extra permissions by teachers that allowed me to sort of never be in class with my peers. So going to get back in the day, wheeling in a TV, um, giving notes to you know the principal or other students or communicating, and also being way probably too aware of what was going on in my teachers' lives as if I was their friend, as opposed to being an actual student. But in other instances, and statistically what's shared, um, is that more often than not, black little girls specifically are treated like they are adult women they're told to stop playing, stop having as much fun, their recess time gets cut, and all of this is really under the basis of they're black and so they are not as innocent as their, their white counterparts. Which means they are judged more harshly and not mm -hmm. giving the same graces as children in their classes uh, of the exact same age uh, is the big thing. And uh, with adultification, there's also a really important thing uh, called shadism and colorism. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reality is, whatever stories Hillary and I have, we are of a lighter skin tone, and I can I can assure you, people with darker skin tones, the darker your skin gets, the worse your stories get. Yeah. Um, so I my parents moved out here in 1999. Uh, I came out and I took a look around and I said, nope. <laughs> I went back to Toronto. It it was it was not for me. Uh, and one of the biggest things that happened, I, I was 19, is uh, and I. I couldn't be more accurate with the story. There's no exaggeration. We were in, again, Riverview, uh, which I don't know if you know, has a horrible history of skinheads and, and racism and, and such like that. We went to this little mall, and we, my sister, who was 14 at the time, we were walking, just walking through this little strip mall, and there was a family. It was a, a man and a woman and their two kids. Uh, and this is before high-speed internet, right? So this is like woods of New Brunswick, no exposure therapy, no exposure to culture. We were just walking down the hallway, and this family, they saw us, and I wish I was exaggerating, but they stopped. They stopped, and like they backed away from us. They, they were like, they didn't know what to do. They just they, they backed away from us. Like we had a gun, and we were going to try to rob them or something. Uh, and that's when I said, nope. <laughs> uh, so I went back. 
and uh, I visited over the next 10 years. Uh, and I'll be honest, even during my trips to New Brunswick in the early 2000s in Moncton, I experienced more racism those three or four times a year I was here than I'd experienced my whole life living in Toronto. And it shook me to my core. Um, I grew up in Toronto around all kinds of cultures, but if you remember my story from the beginning, I didn't grow up around anyone that looked like me. There weren't a lot of, uh, in, there's a lot of interracial, intercultural black and white people now, but in the 80s, no, it, it wasn't a thing. Um, but, so when my father moved here in 99, he, uh, he had a lot of recommendations from Toronto. He worked himself up to be like a building manager of the Bank of Montreal building, one of the biggest uh, buildings in Toronto. And uh, he had a, a number of phone interviews over the phone. Things were going really good. Uh, they wanted to meet him in person. He walked in. The guy was sitting at his desk with his back turned. He turned around and looked at my father and said, oh, you're black. He had a very short interview. And uh, he never heard from the company again. Um, I don't think you've ever told me that story. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's my father's experience. Uh, yeah, I, in 2002, I was walking around downtown Moncton um, at midday, bright day, and uh, I saw this guy walking around topless, proud as can be, a huge swastika tattoo, just tattooed right on his chest, just walking around in public and everything was good. And these were like my visiting times. Um, I, I, you know, I'd go out, I'd try to meet people once in a while. Uh, I, one time, people joked, oh, my N-word at the bar, which would make me upset. Um, but more shocking than that, I, I met a person who invited me to an after party. And uh, you know, you can imagine it's 3 o'clock in the morning. This guy's being really nice to me. We're going to this hotel room. And I get into the hotel room, and everyone looks at me. And one woman just goes, again, like, what is he doing here? I don't want any N-words at this party. And again, you know, I was like, nice to meet you. <laughs> I think I'm going to head out. Yeah. Um, so my sister's stories. And so same thing. Like, I've had weird experiences. I moved into a neighborhood in Moncton in 2014. Call it a middle-class neighborhood. And uh, I was driving home from work one night. Uh, and our car is registered to the company. So, you know, if you typed in the license plate, you wouldn't necessarily see my home address. But... Uh, I got home, and then a few minutes later, a cop showed up at my door. And uh, they asked if I was drunk. And I was like, no, what do you mean? They said someone called in your vehicle and reported you that you were driving drunk in this neighborhood. And I'm not drunk. You can give me a breathalyzer right now if you want. Uh, and I talked to them, and you know, I didn't have a bad experience with the cops. They, they said, no, you're not, you're not drunk. But uh, I just, it really stuck with me, because how'd the person know where I lived? They, they must have followed me home or something. They must have seen me in the neighborhood and followed me home and, and thought I was some kind of a threat to them. Uh, again, I'm going to just run through here. Um, so my children. Uh, my children have had multiple experiences in school. Um, I have I have six children. Um, so, <laughs> yes, but uh, no, it, it's it, a lot of it is hair. And it, it's really crazy, the obsession with hair. I, I don't know what is in all of our combined DNAs that make certain people afraid of black hair or <laughs> uh, obsessed with it. But uh, they get made fun of the hair a lot. Uh, we've heard stories in New Brunswick about little girls getting their hair set on fire. My own child, uh, you know, gets his curls made fun of. Um, my daughter had to switch schools because of the bullying that took place. And 
just not even a month ago, uh, my son, he's seven, uh, there was a grade six kid, we showed him a picture of the Black Lives Matter flag, and he said to him, do you think this flag matters? And my son said, yes, I think the flag matters, and he's just, the kid's seven, he goes, well, you're wrong, the Black Lives Matter flag doesn't matter because black people don't matter. Um, so again, these are real stories, these are happening in school every day. Uh, my son got in a fight about six months ago, uh, someone did say the N-word on the bus, a 10-year-old kid. Um, and my son, I mean, you wouldn't, I'm, so my son is half Egyptian, uh, a quarter black and a quarter white. So he's very, skin is about the tone of every, all of yours, he's got curly hair, but uh, even in 2024, uh, these kinds of things are happening in schools every single day, and uh, unfortunately, the teachers, there are no policies written specifically that address racism. There are many policies in New Brunswick that have to do with uh, bullying, uh, equality, fair treatment, uh, LGBTQ, uh, um, and such like that, but there actually isn't one written that is anti-racism, uh, and that needs to change. We've uh, been working to our capability to try to make that to change. We also think that racism needs to be illegal. So if someone wants to report a hate crime to the police, it, the onus of proof falls on the citizen to hire a lawyer and prove that a, a crime took place, something racist happened in the workplace or a school, whereas with things like the R word or, or things like that, the burden then goes on the taxpayer. It's the police officer's job to investigate to see if this thing actually happened. But because racism is not illegal, uh, there is no support for that kind of a thing. Um, I won't go into too many other stories, except that um, these things happen to our, our, our friends, kids as well. And while we work with the media, we've tried to bring these stories to the media, and they get shut down. Uh, I know of a little, he's probably a 12-year-old boy right now. Uh, he was chased down the street by a bunch of kids with a knife saying they're going to kill you, N-word. Uh, we have a number of screenshots from like Snapchat uh, conversations that you know, kids, they all have their Snapchat groups, where they're just calling him the N-word consistently and saying he's going to die and saying they're going to lynch him. Uh, this was two years ago. Um, they were also racist to his Asian, like, little school girlfriend as well. So it was, it's broader than just black racism, it's just racism in general. Yeah, an incredibly important thing that I like to repeat is that there are many cultures uh, that live in New Brunswick. It's not just white and black people. Um, but we hope and believe and feel that the work we do to break down racism, to teach anti-racism, will trickle down uh, to all cultures uh, and uh, help all cultures from wherever you're from to help us make a more equal society. Uh, the last thing I will say is that, okay, so this is a really important part. My son, seven, he's almost eight, uh, he, he used to tell his teachers about what was happening, uh, about bullying, but if there was, well, I won't say he's been like hugely racially profiled, but if there was any kind of racism. And uh, a couple months ago, he told me that he stopped because he said the teachers don't care. He said they don't do anything. I tell them and they don't do anything. So I just stopped telling them. Uh, I hope that's a little painful. And I hope that you take that with you because uh, he's already lost faith that uh, teachers will be there to help him if someone treats him horribly because of who he is, who he was born as, and something that he can't do anything about. Um, every person of color you encounter has stories like this, and they build up over the years to make us not feel comfortable. Um, school is hard, 
kids are jerks, <laughs> but there is that added, added uh, onus of, of, of things that people of color um, have to deal with that uh, needs to be helped. Um, so uh, I'll run through this really quickly because I'm aware that it's 10, but um, not long ago, uh, Mandy Varma, who's the Commissioner of Systemic Racism for our province, um, released a report. Um, there are, I think, uh, close to 100 recommendations, um, and a lot of them are not being done or considered by our government, but there are several on education that are important, um, including um, mandate anti-racism perspectives into school improvement plans, anti-racism education for Bachelor of Education students at New Brunswick universities, a concerted and transparent effort to increase the number of non-white um, teachers, um, and then also um, there's a whole section as well for international, international and non-white post-secondary students to insert, ensure that they have basic service standards um, and that their needs are met as international students. Um, uh, I recommend that you read it and take a look because these are recommendations that are being recommended essentially to you as the people that are going to be coming in. Um, and while maybe the government can't enforce them or won't enforce them, it would, it, it, I believe the onus is sort of on the the teachers who are trying to impact change to make these things happen. So I would read her recommendations because they are ama amazing um, and very important. Yeah, the goal is moving the bar. You know, you're not going to get rid of racism in the next hundred years, to be honest. You know, it's so easy for an 80-year-old grandmother to pass down uh, racist views to a five-year-old kid. Uh, and so it's, it's going to take a while, but the goal is moving the bar. Um, and then briefly as well, so we were um, honored to be um, asked by UNESCO to read this document. Black Canadians and Public Education, a span of elementary and secondary social studies curricula. Tana Turner uh, wrote uh, the entire piece. Um, and essentially in it, there's also some observations. There's nine of them that are pretty good. Um, number one, curricular documents give teachers the flexibility to integrate black representation, explore black history, and discuss anti-black racism or not, because nothing is technically forced. Um, to integrate black representation and explore black history, teachers need better initial training, ongoing professional learning, and classroom-ready resources. Um, observation three, the curricula do not provide a coherent narrative of the presence of black people in Canada because they include few African Canadians or black histories. Equity and social justice are covered in many curricular documents, but anti-black racism is not specifically mentioned and the experiences of black people are not always explored in discussions about equity and social justice. Not all curricular documents acknowledge slavery in Canada. A number of curricular documents fail to include the Underground Railroad and stories about African-Americans seeking refuge in Canada. Black people are not fully included in discussions of Canada's role in international conflicts. Black Canadians fight for human rights and contributions to Canada's current human rights framework are not fully explored. And the last one, Africa could be better represented in the curriculum. So this is another document that I think should be explored further, but these are all recommendations and observations that I think the main thing she noted was Nova Scotia and Ontario do pretty good um, at like highlighting black communities in their curriculums, but the rest of the country really fails at exploring the full black lens and how black people, the African diaspora, the slave trade impact what Canada looks like and how we all interact. And um, that education isn't being passed down to kids. I think this is a good time to mention as well that we fully believe, and we've been asked about this, that anti-racism training does not make you racist. If you discuss racism, it is 100% dismantling this narrative. Um, we've actually had 
we have haters and we do have trolls on the internet who literally say that by having these talks, we are perpetrating more racism. And we really want to, one, say that everybody in the room, none of you, we believe, none of you are racist because you're white or that you've ever necessarily done anything wrong. This is about an understanding and coming together um, to better society. We never try to educate our white peers or counterparts in a shameful way. This is all about acknowledgement and learning. But also if you, we don't talk about history, if we don't talk about racism, there is more room for that to perpetrate and continue to grow versus learning from history and trying to no longer repeat it. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. Well, well, because history can be repeated. Uh, <laughs> I won't get into current global politics, but uh, yeah, it's, it's very easy for history to be repeated. And it, it, yeah, I never thought we'd see that in our lifetimes. Um, also, uh, one thing that we like to point out is that, yes, it's Black History Month, but as I was saying, black people have been here for as long as European col uh, colonizers, settlers, which is half of our ancestry as well, so again, no guilt. <laughs> but uh, black history is therefore just Canadian history. And what we would like to see for the future is that instead of it just have a focus uh, for one month of the year, is that it should just be completely integrated into our education. Uh, that we, from K to 12, uh, and that's something that we've been working on with the New Brunswick Conservative government, surprisingly enough. Um, Try and get those votes. So, like all human relationships... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I don't vote here. I live in Ontario. I'm not spying anyone. By the next election, I think we'll be selling some Blame Higgs t-shirts. Yeah, <laughs> we want Blame Higgs as merch. This does not reflect the feelings of this institution we're standing on. This reflects the feelings of this yeah, company. Yeah. <laughs> this is our feeling. Okay, well, we, again, it's... You know, whatever your political beliefs, it's... Yeah. We, yeah. we don't like Blame Higgs, specifically. Um, <laughs> like all human relationships, the trust between a teacher and their students is special, unique, valuable, and once broken, can hinder faith of students in the educational system for their entire school career. Uh, every, every interaction counts. Uh, we believe in, again, equality for every single human being uh, and all students. Racism makes people of color feel that people aren't just people and that it's not okay to feel relaxed and comfortable in your skin, in your surroundings, which is a shattering experience. Uh, you know, I think you could hear at certain points the emotion in uh, mine and Hillary's voice. I, I don't find myself to be an overly emotional person, but uh, these, <laughs> these things, they, 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 they burn into your brain and they never go away. Um, and it can greatly hinders, hinder one's desire and ability to contribute lovingly uh, to our communities and our societies. The last thing I'll add to is I think that Matthew Martin from Black Lives Matter is going to share some of the anti-racism training that he's done actually like for teachers, which will give more of an understanding in terms of like what teachers should do in these moments because I assume it's incredibly awkward as like mainly white people to try to deal with when someone calls a black kid the n-word and you might not know what the right thing is, but I think we would both say that it's about being compassionate, understanding, advocating, and just knowing that it's not okay. Um, and realistically, I mean, I, I, what I would say, granted, I'm not a parent, but like figuring out the right reprimand, talk to the adults in the situation and figure out how to deal with that situation because, I mean, they, they care about their kids as much as hopefully you all do. So that's what I would say because I certainly don't have an answer to like how to treat treat those situations. I wouldn't be sure what to say either. We had been, we'd, we'd, we'd wanted to sit in on his session, <laughs> to be yeah, honest. Yeah, we'd like to learn from Matthew as well. Pardon? <laughs> Just go with <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the next class doesn't need to hear us. Yeah, they don't need yet. to hear this out. Um, no, but all, all jokes aside, um, 
I think what's important is, yeah, you know, letting the child that experienced racism know that you, you know that they're hurting, know that they matter, uh, know that, that what happened is not okay, and that everyone around does not feel the way that that person feels, that, that treated them that way. So that's it for this hour. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more, if you have questions, even if it's a year from now, if you want to reach out to us, again, we like to say we're not historian. It means we're entertainers. I say internet-tainers because we entertain on the internet. Well, as you can imagine, we do research this stuff heavily, uh, and uh, we are there for anyone who, who wants to talk to us. So our yeah. website is blacklantic.ca. Uh, and our, our very... email is open. Like We will answer questions, send resources. It's an open, we, we want to help you help other people as well so yeah our goal is you know a better society for future generations you can reach out to us and follow us and watch the show thank you